good evening to each of you. I am really excited to be here. I'm going to spend this whole weekend talking about headship and veiling and everything connected to that. And we have enough time and space this weekend to really, I hope, develop some some deep core convictions and insights about about what all is connected to these issues for for Christian people. I. Um, that's that's pretty heavy stuff. It can be. Um, it deals with a lot of things. It deals with gender. It deals with the Godhead. It deals with the church. Like there's a lot of stuff there involved in all these issues. And I I was wondering to myself what makes me qualified to even come and share with you all about these things. And I don't I don't know all the answers to that question. Um, but by way of, of explaining to you who I am, I, I have 12 children. Lazarus here is one of my sons. He, uh, he came with me. Today's his birthday. And I'll tell you one thing uh, about him that's interesting. His name is Lazarus not just because I like the story. They told us when my wife was pregnant with Lazarus, they told us three times, the midwife and the doctor, that the child had passed. And it was the third time, after the third time, we went to um, a perinatologist, a specialist that we'd work with. People think if you have 12 children that your pregnancies must be very easy and things go very smoothly, and they do not for us. We've, we've had a lot of, my wife has spent a lot of time in the hospital um, bearing her children. And we went to a perinatologist after the third time they told us that we had lost the child, and... Um, he just wanted to check my wife's womb with an ultrasound and see what was going on and what had happened. When I, when I walked in the door, he's a man that had helped us with several of our children. He, he was crying and he, he hugged me and he said, I'm so sorry for everything that's been happening. And he sat down at ultrasound machine and he said, well, let's look and see what's going on. And he flipped on that machine. I don't know if you, how, how many ultrasounds you've been in. I've been in quite a few. Uh, you know, usually they got to move the wand around, and it's just static and nothing. But as soon as he flipped the machine on, there was Lazarus just kicking and just fine. And he was as shocked as we were. And when he walked outside of the room, I told my wife, I said, if this is a boy, we never find out till they're born. But I said, if this is a boy, we're going to name him Lazarus. So that's, that was just over 15 years ago, and he's with me today. I, um, I don't come from... Uh, an Anabaptist community, at least not in any of the real technical sense of those things. My grandfather was a Baptist preacher. My family's Italian immigrants from Detroit. Um, I'm the second generation born in America. And so I've come into this way of being in the kingdom uh, through, not through birth, through study, through conviction, through God leading me. And, um, you know, there's there's, there's pluses and minuses. There's ups and downs to the different journeys that we come through. There's different uh, assets and liabilities that we have in how God finds us and leads us. And so that's a part of who I am and where I'm coming from. I want to begin this evening talking with you. Um, I, I want to start talking about order. Because order is central to this whole issue of headship, right? It's, it's often referred to as the headship order. And what is interesting about that to me 
is that there's a lot of different ways that the word order can be used in the English language. You can order someone, like give them a command. I order you to whatever, you know, legal terminology is written that way sometimes. You can give an order to someone or a, a military order. That's one way in which the word is used. But the other way, and the way that I think is more pertinent to what we're talking about, is in a ranking of, new, of number, like first, second, third, fourth, that you order things in, in a series. And that's a significant term to me. Let's, let's open to begin in Genesis chapter 3, and let's start at the beginning. It's a good place to start. Genesis chapter 3. This is where we begin. Yeah, this is where we all begin. Um, I want to, actually, I'm, we're, we're going to start a chapter earlier. Let's start in G Genesis chapter 2 and verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So the reason we started with order is because this is literally the order of creation. God makes, you know, he has his own order in the seven days of creation. And I think those things are very intentional, at least in the way they're recorded. That God ordered out his creation. He, he wanted us to know this came, and then this came, and then this came. And then, then he has man in the middle of his creation. And he shows him all the things that there are, and he names all the creatures. He has this sense of, de he develops a sense of identity. Adam, as God's primary creation, he looks out at all of God's creation and all of its beauty and all of that it has to offer, and he develops an autonomous identity. He's different than that. And everywhere he looks, he sees this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And, this and, this, and he no, names the, the creation. He gives names to them and recognizes his own identity as separate from everything else. And, and the result of this is that it's kind of an isolating experience. He ends up at the end of this process. I mean, it doesn't say this, but it's how I would feel if I was that. Like, what about me? Like, where do I fit in all this I, I think that God has Adam name all the creatures, that he walks through the creation this way with him, so that he has a sense of understanding where he is and his difference from everything else. Because nothing is like him. The birds, the fish, the creeping things, the, all those creatures, he's not like any of them. And we still today recognize the difference between man and animal. There's some differentiation between us and them. And that's even hard to 
quantify. It's hard to know what that is because, you know, if you love a dog, you can see it gets sad at night or it gets happy when you come home. It's not that the creature doesn't have some kind of emotional state. You know, they, they used to say that, that the difference between man and animal was that men use tools. Well, now we know that chimpanzees will use tools and other creatures will use tools. Dolphins will use tools. And we know that some creatures are very smart and trainable and intelligent. Some communication was another thing that used to theorize that was the difference between man and animal. Now we know there's all kinds of complicated communication networks, especially among high order primates and, and, and whales have deep and vast communication networks. So that's not it. What is it about us that's different than the animals? And this is what Adam is experiencing. And at the end of that time, at the end of all that, he sits alone. And in that state of sitting alone, God causes a deep sleep to fall on him, and he creates woman for him. And this is the order. God, creation, man, woman. And it's in the name, woman, from him. And the reason all of this matters is not just because this is the origin of all things. As we look this, as we look coming up, and we'll see where we get to by the end of tonight, but as we look this weekend, what we'll see is that this story and these themes are pivotal to how Paul builds a case for how the church should interact with these concepts about order and men and women and where we fit in relation to each other. He uses this order a lot in his rationale. It's why he says the things he says. He appeals to it over and again. And so we want to familiarize ourselves here at the beginning. So Adam has an order of priority. Eve, in, when we look at order, the next order that, that comes up is that Eve is the first to eat of the fruit. In the temptation, in the garden, and in the fall, She's first here. And this is also something that Paul alludes to, and we can talk about when we get to those passages, what that may mean. Because how, how does this, what does Adam have to do with me? And what does Eve have to do with you? What you'll see is, if you look carefully at the Bible, these orders, I, I want to I lay out a principle right here. Let's talk about it for a minute. There's something, I, I first came across this idea in a book by Matthew Bates, Salvation by Legions Alone. And he talks about something called, um, I forget what he terms it, but oh, he calls it a V-shaped story. And he's talking in relation to Christ. So Christ begins here, equal to God, and through the incarnation, he humbles himself and then he dies at the cross, and then he descends into the place of the dead, into Hades. So way up here, and he goes way down here, and the, not, the narrative of the epistles is that he ascends way up above even where he began. He becomes higher than where he started. And this, this pattern is a pattern of biblical narrative. There's a lot of places that have this V-shape. So... You have Adam and his transgression starting here in the garden and descending into the temptation of the fall, and then the second Adam coming up above where the, where the first Adam was. 
you have the first woman in the same kind of story. She begins here, she falls, and then Mary's obedience as kind of a second, a, a, a second emblem for women. She excels above the disobedience of the first woman. This narrative happens all throughout the biblical narrative. It's like a feature. It's a, it's a thematic feature of the Bible story. And you see this down and up, down and up. And we're going to see that too as we, look at these, uh, as we look at these things. And the neat thing about this is that I think that this means this is an invitation for me and you. We can do this. I have my own personal journey of descending into lostness and sin and rising in salvation and redemption. And we, in, in different features in our life and how we relate to the gospel and how we relate to the church and how we relate to our gender and how we relate to our place in God's world, we can follow this pattern. And this promise of ascendancy, this promise of being put up on high, this promise of through humility, through obedience, through righteousness, we can find our home in a different place than where we began. We can go higher than our natural state. That's, the, that's what all this is about, is creating order. And this is the other sense of order. It's like order is the command, right? Order is the ordering and number. And order is like everything's in order. Like when, you, when, you, when you're having company over to your house, you want the house in order, right? You don't want it messy. You don't want all the stuff out. You don't want the children's beds unmade. You don't want stuff on your counters. You want everything in order. And that sense of order creates a space for peace and rest and comfort. Because when, when everything's in order, then you can do whatever else needs to be done. And that, that's why I think, uh, as, a, as a taste of what's to come, that's why I think these things really matter in the church, that we're in order so that we can do the things that we're here. My house isn't made to just be cleaned. You put the house in order so that the house can do the things that it's supposed to do. So you can be a family together, so you can spend time together, so you can work, so you can care for children, so you can love one another, so you can have relationships. That's why you want your house in order, so that there's space to do those things. And the reason God wants his people in order is so that we have the space to do the things that we're here to do. And if we're stuck in disorder... If we're stuck without knowing where we belong, and what's my place, and what am I supposed to be doing, and how do I relate to this and that, that's disorder. And it makes it so that you can't do anything else. And so this is why God wants order, and this is why order is the key, a beginning key to looking at all these passages. So Eve, Eve is the first in order. This is her low spot, right? When she is the first to to partake of the forbidden fruit. And in the curse that proceeds from that, he says several different things. In the next chapter, um, let's, let's go ahead and, and read the, the fall passage here. We'll start in... in um, let's start in verse 4. Five for uh, no, let's go down to seven. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew um, that they were naked. So this knowledge brings consciousness of shame. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. This is a curious thing, um, because we're talking about gender and order. I'm going to mention it here, but it's interesting to me that this shame. You know, we usually talk about modesty and shame in the context of 
sexual identity, that modesty is important for, for keeping, you know, keeping people where they should be in regards to sexual temptation and lust and these kinds of things. That's often how we talk about modesty. But here in the garden, these notions of shame have nothing to do with that. Because there's only two people in the garden, right? It's just Adam and Eve. But they immediately want to clothe themselves when their eyes are open, when they, when they become conscious, their first impulse has nothing to do with protecting me or you from their bodies, has nothing to do with protecting each other from their bodies. They themselves feel vulnerable and naked and ashamed. And they want to hide from that. They want to get away from that. And, they, and it's, so, it's so visceral that they, they literally want to clothe themselves to create some distance. They don't want to just be out in the world. They need some kind of something to hide behind because God's coming. And that sense of shame and that sense of fear and that sense of, of um, vulnerability is what all proceeds out of it's the It's the marks of the death that comes from that disobedience in the garden. And as this happens then, you know, the eyes of them were open. They knew that they were naked. They make themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. How do you, it's so naive. How do you hide yourself from the presence of the Lord? Amongst the trees of the garden of all things. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, wherever I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. There's... um. There's a, a, a modern sensibility about this narrative that Eve take, and women take the blame for everything that's wrong in the world. And there's some reason why they say that. But what I would say is that reading this narrative, the real creep of the story is Adam, right? Like he doesn't only just blame Eve for his actions, he literally blames God for his actions. This woman that you gave me, she gave me of the fruit and I did eat. And so this, like, just like the clothes, trying to distance himself from the nakedness, the vulnerability, and the shame, Adam's doing the same thing verbally. He's trying to create space between him and his actions. He wants some kind of buffer. It's not me, it's the woman. It's not the woman, it's the woman you gave me. And these defense mechanisms are... They're, they're the problem that has come from the knowledge of good and evil. From our first parents, transgression in the garden has sown all of this into human structures. This blame shifting, this attempt to avoid responsibility. And what we should learn from that is that we, if we want to learn from that, we need to learn to recognize the marks of this behavior. The marks of sin are blame shifting, avoiding responsibility, trying to put other people in the way, and not what Adam doesn't do is stand out in the middle of God's presence and say, I blew it. I did wrong. 
I shouldn't have done it. And I did. That's not what Adam does. And that's something for us to learn. In um, a famous story, Milton wrote Paradise Lost. And in Paradise Lost, which is a narrative about this scene, it's fictionalized, but it's, it's very beautifully done. In, in Paradise Lost, Milton has this scene play out in a way that Eve is literally tricked by the devil. She doesn't understand the implications of what she's doing. But Adam, when he's presented with the fruit, he has a very clear choice of Eve on one side or God on the other side. See, Adam, in, according to Milton, and I think this is probably something close to the truth, Adam isn't deceived. Adam makes a willful, conscious choice. He doesn't get tricked. He's not, he's not, there's nothing hiding his decision-making process. He's not, there's no trickery going on. Adam has a clear decision in front of him. Adam knows the separation that, that comes from this event. And in Adam's case, he chooses to be with Eve. I would rather be lost with Eve than saved with God. I would rather be wrong with Eve than right with God. And that's the choice that he makes. And, and that's why the terminology around the fall has Eve being deceived and Adam choosing. And, and what I think is interesting about that is that the immediate response to Adam making that choice is that he becomes bitter at her and at God. Like making choices that way that you know are wrong for some other purpose. I want, it's, a, it's an evaluation, right? Adam weighs in this garden moment, he weighs how much he values God and how much he values Eve. And Eve wins. And this becomes a huge problem. This is like the fall of humanity, right? I don't know what would happen if he had chosen not to. We don't have, we don't have any access to that. But we do know that Adam makes a choice in a different way than Eve does because nobody's tricking him. And the, the implications of this action as the curse is, is given out from God are as follows. He said... Um, and the Lord God said in verse 13 unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, and he curses the serpent. And then in verse 15, there's the connection between the serpent and, and the seed of the woman. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shalt bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field." In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat thy bread, till thou return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. 
And so these become, the curse becomes the prototype for humanity. Eve walks in these things. She becomes the life bearer, but it's, but it's sorrowful. There's pain associated with it. it. It's the best and the worst. She becomes the mother of all living, but it has to come through pain and toil. Adam becomes the provider, but it comes through pain and toil. And this becomes the dimensions of the genders and how they interact in a fallen world. Is through these archetypes, these basic categories. <coughs> Let's, um, with that as a background, um, this notion of where where this story begins, the what gets broken in in this decision making process and disobedience in the garden. And how that, how that affects not just Adam and Eve, but men and women. Have you ever, um, have you ever seen people play out Adam and Eve in their lives? You ever seen a man who makes a choice for sin instead of obedience and then becomes bitter at the person that he made that choice for? I've watched this happen a lot, you know. People replay these categories over and over again. They, they reconstitute Adam and Eve's decisions. We think this is a story. We think we really, like, regardless of how, how literalist you are, like if you believe Adam and we all, I hope, believe Adam and Eve are real people. This is a real event that happened. But my point is that a lot of times it becomes this story way in the past instead of something that gets played out. Because I watch this story happen in people's lives over and over again. I encounter people who are bitter at their wives because they made a choice to, to, to do something here, like this, this woman that you gave me, she's the spoil, she's the problem, she's the one thing that's wrong with my life. I, I, watch, I watch women you know, tempt their families and tear down their homes and break the world around them. I, I watch these scenes play out over and over again. This is not a mythology. This is a pattern, and it's a pattern that still exists today. It's a pattern of disorder, and there's a remedy for this pattern. There's a remedy for this broken model. God does have an order that he wants us to be in, but it almost requires that we be conscious and mindful of where we come from, not just as Christians, but as men and women, that, that being observant of this order that we, this place that we come from, helps us put our lives back in order. So let's jump forward, and we'll look at another foundational text that we're going to look at this, this weekend in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> For the sake of context, I think that um, because we're going to We'll talk about it more. We'll, we'll just read these 16 verses. So stay with me. I know this is a lot of text to read tonight, but it'll be worth it. He says in, in verse 1, Be followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know, put your finger here as we read through and keep it here. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. That's going to be our central verse for tonight. 
Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, forasmuch as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. And here's our creation narrative. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause, because of that order, ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as much as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. But all things of God. Judging yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. And we're going to dig into the, the weeds on that chapter, but I want, to, I want to emphasize this third verse. I'm going to go back there. I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. This, to me, is one of the, one of the, one of the best laid out principles for everything that has to do with this. And it's really, really comforting for me. Um, I have, uh, I have a real fear about, um, women being pushed down and suppressed and told to be quiet from these texts. I have a real fear that there have been times and places, and there are places now, where women are not held up in a place of order because of these things, but they're pushed down and browbeaten because of these things. And I think that's horrible. I hate that. I have a bunch of daughters. And I, do, I love my daughters. I love my wife. I, I, they're beautiful people, and they have so much value and so much beauty and so much wonderful things, and I want so many wonderful things for them. The idea of someone using God's word and God's principles to just browbeat and suppress them and tell them to shut up and be quiet, and this is the world's not about you, it's about men, that happens, and it has happened, and it's terrible. That's not what God is doing here. There's a way that, that God wants us to understand these principles about headship and order that isn't, that isn't the promotion of men and the demotion of women. It's the setting of all things in order so that everyone can be everything that God wants them to be. That's what God is, that's what Paul's trying to do with his church here. That's what God's trying to do through the scriptures is seat everyone in the place where they're on firm footing, where they know who they are, what they are, and how to be exactly what he wants them to be. And we can learn that if we, as we study these scriptures. That's what I want. And the key to that is that what it means for 
for a man to be a head over a woman is like what it means for Christ to be over a man is like what it means for the father to be over the son. This is like, this is like the beauty of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Don't do unto others what you want to do to them. Don't do unto others what you think is good for them. Do unto others what you would want done to you. You are the metric for the golden rule. You know how you want to be treated. Nobody has to tell you how you want to be treated. It's an internal compass. You know how you want to be treated. That's how you should treat other people. And the beauty of that formulation is that you carry the compass inside of you. And the same thing is true with this passage on headship. You carry the compass for how this should work inside you. How do you, as a man, receive headship from Christ? What does your relationship to Christ mean? How does he interact with you? How does he lead you? How does he teach you? How does he guide you? How does he love you? How does he shepherd you? What is your interaction with him like? That's what it should be like for the woman that you're the head of. And if that's not clear enough, we have the perfect example of Christ and his father. How is their relationship? What does it look like for Christ to submit to the Father? What does it look like for the Father to lead Christ? These are a chain. These things are mirrors of each other. What it's like for the Father over the Son is what it's like for Christ over man is what it's like for man over woman. And if that doesn't work right, you're, you're, I don't care what you call it. I don't care what terminology is used for it, and I don't care how it looks to people around. If that's not the internal framework of what happens in the headship order that you're a part of, it's disordered. It's the opposite of what, of what God is trying to do in the scriptures. Because order looks like what it looks like for Christ to lead men and what it looks like for the Father to lead Christ. That's order. That's the right order. So how is it with you? How does your order look like? When you think about your... Let's, let's just think with me here for a minute. What does your relationship with Christ look like? I was... <clears throat> I was... Um, converted, became a Christian in the summer, in the winter of 1999. I was married in the summer and I became a Christian in the winter. And since then, in 23 years, there are some things that have never happened to me. I have never in my Christian life felt browbeat or intimidated, or compelled, or forced, or bullied by Christ. It's never happened in the 23 years I've been a Christian. Not a, not a single instance. I've never been afraid of Christ. 
I've never been worried he's going to mistreat me. I've never had him spiritually scream at me or whip me or get into a fury. I've never felt panicked. I've never felt coerced. It's just, I, I have no, I have no zero experiences with Christ that way. And so if a woman comes to me and she says, this is how my experience is. I feel intimidated. I feel bullied. I feel suppressed. I feel, I say, that's not God's order. That's not what this is talking about. That's literally the opposite of what this is talking about. Force has never been an option in, in, in how I interact with Christ. And can you imagine what a blasphemy it would be to suppose that, that the Father was somehow coercing or forcing Christ to do the thing? I mean, there's so much terminology in the Gospels about Jesus' willingness to go to such radical extremes to please his father. That all gets flipped on its head if you introduced even a drop of coercion or force or intimidation. It becomes the opposite of what it was. That's mutually exclusive with what this relationship is supposed to look like. There's zero room for it. I'll tell you how my relationship with Christ has been. And I, I'm willing to assume that it's how your experience is. <clears throat> Christ has always been willing to lead me. He's never left me alone. Even when, I, even when I fail over and over again, he is always there, always ready to help, always ready to hear, always ready to love, always ready to accept, always ready to forgive. In my interactions with Christ, I always feel built up. Even in the hard things that I've had to deal with him, even in conviction of my sin, even in my failures, I feel like he's there with me. I feel like he's there to, to hold me and help me and lead me along. And it's not like he's pulling me or dragging me. He's there with me, beside me, helping me. I feel like he's always provided for me. I've never been left wondering if there's supply for my salvation or my grace. I've never felt abandoned. I've, I've never felt alone. I've never doubted his meekness. which is power under control. Those things have never been lacking in my relationship with Christ. And as I look at Christ and how he responds to his father, how he talks about him and with him and to him in the gospel narrative, I find the same marks of provision and power and protection and strength.
here's a here's a key insight I feel like from all this that pertains to us in my relationships with Christ in my relationship with Christ and what I see modeled with 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 the father and the son I have never been left to feel like I'm the one carrying the weight And the reason that's significant to me is because, and I'll just be, I don't know you guys, so I'll take the risk of just being real honest and frank with you. I would say 70% of the problems in my home and my marriage have been when my wife feels like she's left alone to bear it by herself. And that's something that I never feel with Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the lowest point that we can point to in the life of Christ, as low as it goes, I, I, I don't know how to compare it with the, his actual death on the cross, but the Garden of the Gethsemane looks like the climax point of the narrative. And in the, in the worst place that Jesus goes to, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his friends aren't with him, when he's all alone, when he knows what's coming, he weeps tears of blood, it's the lowest point of his whole humanity. And in that place, the father sends angels themselves. He sends angels to comfort his son. And I've never, I've never felt like it's my job to make it work. I always feel like I'm in collaboration with him. I always feel like he's there to lead me by the hand and to take me and to show me that he's responsible for the outcomes, that he's going to make it work, that he showed me a path, that he's got a way to follow. And if I just stay with him, if I just stay by his side, that it's going to be okay. And when that isn't mirrored in our homes, in our marriages, when we leave our women out in the cold emotionally, psychologically, and physically... That's where the pain and the mistrust and the problems come, many of them. There's some other things too, but that's a big one. And now after being married for a bunch of years, we have a language that we use in my marriage to talk about this. And my wife will say to me, I feel alone. I feel like I'm on my own. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not we're sitting in the same room. It has to do with responsibility and who's bearing the burdens and who's carrying the load and who's doing their share and who's charting the course and who's making the way and who's going to be responsible. That's what headship is about. Headship is not about, headship is not about coming home at the end of the day and putting your feet up and having your slippers on and a nice supper made and happy children to sit around your feet. That's not headship. Headship is the hard work. Headship is the hard part. It's not the, it's not the easy part. It's the hard part. Anybody can do the easy stuff. Anybody can sit and put their feet up and have the children smiling and a nice warm supper. That's not hard. What's hard, what's the real work of being a Christian man is the opposite, is when things aren't working well and the house isn't all fixed and everything's not all smiling, everything's not the warm supper and things aren't going well and people are sick and things are hard. Who steps in then? Headship is supposed to step in. The provider. The leader. 
is supposed to get up out of his chair and make it work. Because that's what Jesus does for me. That's what the Father did for him. And if we want to lay claim and write if, to these texts, if we want to talk about women this way in the church, and I think we should, then it's our job to do our part. If I'm going to come out here and talk about headship and veiling, we're going to start by talking about men taking responsibility for their homes and men being leaders and men doing the hard work of being ahead in their home. Because I, I think that's most of the problem why our order is out of order. Why is it that Jesus is willing to work and to strive that way? What, what, what fills him? Like in that relationship, when we, when, we, when we analyze our walk with Christ, what is it about, what is it for him that motivates him and moves him? Well, fortunately, the scriptures tell us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy he had in you and in me and in his church and in his people and in what his, the work of his father, those things motivated him and compelled him to the great degree that he was willing to suffer for you and for me. And if you're a father, you want to be a father. If you're a husband or you want to be a husband, you need to cultivate that heart. The willingness to work, the willingness to endure, the willingness to bear, to be the one that picks up things when they don't work well and figure out the solution and make it work, not to put it on somebody else. Here's the opposite. First Adam, second Adam. Adam says, it's this woman. It's her job. She's not doing her part. She's not, she didn't do what she was supposed to do, and she came from you, and so you guys are the problem, and I'll stand over here until you all figure it out. That's first Adam. Second Adam is, I will go down there. I will, I will leave my throne. I will leave my glory. I will leave my power. I will wrap my divinity in human flesh and I'll bleed and hurt and hunger and I'll go through despising and shame and torture and torment because I want to make a way for them. That's second Adam. And when there's conflict and when there's strife and when there's problems and when things don't work well, you are picking which Adam you are. Which one's, your, which one's your model? Which one's your emblem? Which one's your moniker? Are you first Adam or are you second Adam? Are you looking for who to blame and how not to take responsibility? Or are you stepping in and saying, I'll find a way. I'll make it work. I'll, I will do, I, we will find the path to get through this. And I'll lead the way.
And you can, and what happens then, because Jesus did that, because he was such a clear model and such a clear head, what we see happening in the wake of his resurrection is a wave of martyrs who are emulating his conduct. They become the cherished prize and pride of the new church. The testimony of the church that comes in the wake of Jesus' suffering is a people who are willing to suffer because he suffered before them. And this is order. If you, if you step into that place, and if you, as the head in your home, if you step into that place and you say, it's my job, it's my responsibility, I'm going to find a way to make this work. And I'm going to suffer for it. I'm willing to bear whatever it costs. We're going to find our way through. When you take those steps, what it does is produce the same heart in the people that are following you. Because the church who watches Christ suffer says, that's worth following. I, I see how he means it. I see how he's willing to to really do what he says. And if he's willing to go that far, I can at least follow behind him. And it's the substance of the church that spreads the gospel to the known world. And their suffering is the key to their power. Their crosses. Their emulation of their head. I want to be like him. I saw what he did, and he's with me. I'm going to go that way too. That creates order. And that's the order we should be in.